This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Kanda Mason's Brown Rice Hour, a podcast that quilts together a fabric of connection between land, race, money, culture, and spirit. Discover a connection that engages with the most inspiring and cutting-edge thought leaders today, pointing toward our collective healing and liberation. If you are interested in supporting the Brown Rice Hour, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Kanda. Welcome. I am Conda Mason, and I am welcoming you back, or for the first time, to the Brown Rice Hour. This is my podcast where I talk uh, about issues at the intersection of land, race, money, culture, and spirit. And so it's a broad array of things that I talk about, and I have the pleasure and the opportunity to invite in just wonderful people to my podcast that I have the opportunity to, to engage with. And, um, and today I have a wonderful special guest and her name is Carol Connell. And Carol, um, thank you and welcome to the Brown Rice Hour. Thank you, Conda. It's really an honor to be here with you. I am so happy to have you here. And Carol is um, my special guest. And before we get into... Carol, even though, well, I'll tell you a little bit that she is the founder and the executive director of a nonprofit called Braided Wisdom, and it is a cross-cultural mindfulness organization. And so we'll talk a lot about Braided Wisdom and Carol and the incredible path that she has had to get to where she is. I'm, I'm really excited about this conversation. But before we start, into that, um, I'd like to begin by opening up sacred space. And Carol, you are such a person that opens up sacred space in the work that mm-hmm. you do. And um, and we begin by, you know, acknowledging, doing a land acknowledgement and really acknowledging the, the folks and the indigenous folks who were here way before us, who really um, we're here on, on the land that we are sitting on and their entire um, people and customs and language. And I'm wondering where you are calling in from today and who are the people who were on that land and may still be, hopefully. I'm calling from the Ramatush uh, Ohlone unceded uh, land of San Francisco. Um, you know, so, um, yeah, across the bay, uh, very much active and fully, and even, uh, several different tribal bands are here. They're just, I just heard that they just receive, um, property for a cultural center that's about to come. That was been one of their hopes and dreams. Sweet. Yeah. That's wonderful. I am, I'm calling in from Louisiana and this is the, the unceded territory of the Choctaw people who are um, actually, um, come, I'm finding out a part of my own lineage. So I'm in this deep dive right nice. now about my uh, lineage. And so I'm super excited about um, things that I'm learning. So we'll talk Wonderful. about that too. Yeah. So, so beautiful. And also, I just love also to, um, 
you know, to center ourselves around the ancestors and um, those who came before us, who have, whose wisdom we rely on, we hear it in, 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 in that that voice that comes to us if we really pay attention and listen. And I give honor to our ancestors and then also to those who are still to come, who are on their way, who are going to lead after we are gone. And may we leave them with um, the kinds of information and knowledge and wisdom that they need to, to move forward and take the and take the baton forward and may we become good ancestors to them. So giving thanks for this moment together and uh, opening up this space with you, Carol. It's so appropriate to have that kind of opening with you and the work that you do. I can't wait to talk more about it and to have people understand the importance of what you are doing on the planet right now and how it's, um, piece of the medicine, a big piece of the medicine that's necessary. And so I'm going to begin like I always do on the brown rice hour. And um, so, you know, brown rice is about food and it's about culture. It's about how we show up in our families and what brought us here. And so food is a big part of that. And I love asking this question because it kind of gives an insight into um, folks and um, a lot around family and uh, or or not and whatever shows up shows up but I'm always curious to hear um, and the question is I think you may know by now what is what was your favorite comfort food growing up as a child and who was the per- person or people who prepared that food for you thank you that is such a wonderful beginning <laughs> Uh, and and one that I you know right now even as I think about it and and have heard your interviews um, I was just like thinking comfort food as a child I couldn't think of food that I defined in that way you know <laughs> so uh, and I actually come from you know being a young one in the seventies so whatever came to the table is what we were meant to eat you know so. <laughs> Not a lot of choice there, um, but one of the I was thinking like comfort food, and it took me a while to really think about that. And I, you know, it's not necessarily something. Maybe it's a product of that time, but um, something that I think about, like when I would get upset or disappointed or had a really bad day, my mother would ask me, you know, would take me to go get ice cream, but it's the kind that is a soft soft chocolate ice cream. It's a soft cone chocolate ice cream. And there's a burger place in town that's been around since the 40s. And that's where she would take me to go get a soft, you know, chocolate cone of ice cream. And I kid you not, it shape shifted my mood every single time, even though I knew her strategy to get me in a better mood, you know, each time, you know, it was hard for it not to work once I had the ice cream cone in my hand, you know, and it's chocolate who denies chocolate. So, um, Anyway, so that, yeah, so that was one of the things most memorable. And I kid you not, even today, if I were in a a funk that I couldn't get out of and someone were to put me a scoop of chocolate, Ben and Jerry's or something, I'd be so happy. (laughs) So there's something about that. And interesting or not, I just had my six-year-old nephew here, my brother's son, and he's exactly the same when it comes to it. A scoop of chocolate ice cream and he can get quite moody and grumpy. <laughs> so I don't know if that's a comfort food, but it's a story, you know. Oh, that's a good story. That's and it's being passed to the next generation. <laughs> it's an ongoing story. It never stops, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, and you know your I knew my mother's strategy each time. And sometimes I just wanted to be mad and angry or crying or, you know, in an outburst. And she's like, no, let's go. And and it actually signified my alone time with her, you know, having to share it with other siblings. Yeah. Yeah. You know? 
that's part of the comfort is also just being able to be with your mom and not have anybody else just one-on-one time and chocolate. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah. We're going to we're going to roll back and and let people know a little bit more about you other than chocolate and um and uh that comfort that it gave you. I'm going to read a little bit about your bio, Carol, so that folks can um, get a sense of where we're going in this conversation um, mm-hmm. and why I'm just excited to have you on the podcast. So, um, so Carol, yeah. So Carol, she has uh, practiced over 30 years in Thailand. Um, my um, Buddha Dharma, right? Buddha Dharma. Mm-hmm. She has practiced over 30 years in Thailand and has actively engaged in building communities and teaching Dharma internationally. Um, so Carol teaches as a teacher at the Spirit Rock Meditation Center, which we love. She is a core teacher and former board member of East Bay Meditation Center, which we also love in Oakland. Um, and Carol founded, co-founded Philippine Insight Meditation Community in the Philippines. She is, as I said earlier, the founder and executive director of Braided Wisdom, which is a 501c3 nonprofit that empowers diverse communities by fostering transformational change through integrating indigenous wisdom teachings and cross-cultural mindfulness practices. Carol also holds a master's degree in psychology. She specialized in consciousness, spirituality, and integrative health, and and a certification in existential, humanistic, and transpersonal psychology from Saybrook University. Her unique teachings are deeply rooted, and this is what I really want to get involved in in our conversation, deeply rooted in Basque, Native American, and Buddhist influences that braid the Dharma along with indigenous wisdom and earth-based practices. Um, Carol reminds us to keep grounded in our hearts as we uphold spiritual ideals and encourages us to remain balanced within the demands of modern life. That is so beautiful. And there's so much there to unpack. I mean, Carol, I think about the unique combination of influences that your teaching has, um, the Basque, the Native American, the Buddhist, um, being, uh, having this Philippine background. I'm really interested for you to kind of give us the, the trajectory of how all that came together and where you started. Did you start in the Philippines, I mean, I, I actually don't know the answer to that question. And just kind of the whole trajectory of how all those different influences came together. So unique. Yeah, I mean, it depends where you want to start. I mean, there are many beginnings of that. You know okay, what I mean? I guess. Yeah. And mm-hmm. as you know yourself, it seems like so many lives ago, you know, yeah, and yeah. Um, but it's a, a, a live this particular, you know, path of the Buddha Dharma is one that the thread just keeps, you know, it's just part of me. So, um, but yeah, so I don't, it's a broad, it's a broad question. Any specifics? Like, where did I start meeting the Buddha on the road or? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, I guess that that beginning is really important to this whole story of what, why I keep doing what I'm doing. Um, when I was 19, I had an existential crisis is what I would call it in hindsight, 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was living the life I thought I wanted, you know, 19 living in West London, had a job with Vidal Sassoon. I mean, had a new relationship. I thought I was in it. You know, I thought this is what I want. This is what life is. I've, I've got it, you know, and, um, I remember one day going to work, getting ready to go to work. And when I left my apartment and I went to work, something just hit me. Like it just hit me at the height of my joy. Mm. Is this what life is all about? Work, love, and being, you know, getting happy, being happy. Is this it? And I just remember asking that at 19, that question And that question just felt like I got kicked in the gut kind of feeling because what I felt in that moment was there's something missing. There's something missing. 
And actually, it brought me to a deep depression. And at the height of my life that I thought I wanted at 19, of course, who at 19 knows exactly what they want. But, you know, and I just discovered that that's not so I was really quite depressed. And I, you know, quite frankly, that week I had a birthday party to go to, Mm -hmm. um, which who was my best friend and her birthday party. And I didn't want to go. And um, I went to her birthday party, sat uh, at the back of the pub. And really away from everyone. And I was pretty doom gloom. And um, I heard a voice. I didn't know I was sitting in the back alone. And I heard a voice said, you look too young to be so sad. Wow. This was a real voice, not your inner voice. It was a real voice. And I looked back. I didn't know I was alone. So I turned around and I was like, hi. And I met this older woman who must have been in her 40s at that time. And and she just says, tell me, you know, why you look so sad. And and for some reason, the connection to that question, I just told her, I, I just like poured out my heart to her, like just told her what was happening, like what was going on. And she gave, she says, I have to leave, right? The conversation was coming to a close and she goes, here's my card. And I want you to promise me that you call me and um, we will meet this week. Your story has really impacted me and I would love to continue it. And I thought to myself, like a 19 year old, self-absorbed, someone listened to my story. I'm definitely going to call her. <laughs> like, you know, it's just like, who's this woman? She just listened to me for an hour because, you know, I wasn't with around family in London. I was missing my aunties, my grandma, the way I grew up, you know, and here's, you know, this older woman just listening to my story. And there's something familiar there in hindsight 2020. And um, so I did meet her. That week I called her, I met her, and it was really at the same location of where I worked down in West London. And I ended up meeting her in this posh hotel for tea. And I just thought that was the strangest thing. I'm meeting a strange woman in a posh hotel for proper tea. And, you know, that's not what I would do at 19. And so I met her and I remember sitting down at the table and she just launched right onto your story has me thinking, you know, it brought up when I was a young girl, my father was in the British army and I was a young girl. We lived in India. And one of the most memorable trips I had was in Siam, which is Thailand. Mm-hmm. And that's where I met the Buddha. She just said it like that. And I'm like, who's the Buddha in my mind? And I'm looking, listening to her. And she says, your story I just want you to know that that feeling that you have inside you, mm-hmm. you know, that you, what you might be calling emptiness is um, will not be fulfilled by anything external. And if you really want to fulfill that, you should really go to the teachings of the Buddha. I didn't know Siam and I didn't know the Buddha, so I didn't understand what was happening. And she handed me an envelope and she said, your story has been, I've been thinking about it. It's a little too late for myself. And I, and that stayed with me for many years. She's like, it's a little too late for me, hmm. but for you, I, I, there's an envelope. And in this envelope is my travel agent with 500 quid. And wow. I recommend you go to Siam, to wow. Thailand. Five hundred quid. I, I didn't even need it, but yes, <laughs> you know, I was. Yeah, I didn't even. And then she goes, "I'm sorry, I have to go." The only thing that I asked for, and I looked at her, and I did have this like feeling of like, "What does she want?" Mm-hmm. You know, and she goes, "She must have read it." And she goes, "All I want is a letter. Inside is my address as well." And honestly. Whatever that was, she left. That important stranger turned my world 360 degrees. And in that moment, I knew inside me that everything she said was, I had no idea what it meant, but it was right. So I called my best friend, my witness of that time, who we still talk to. He lives in Hong Kong now. And, um, And I called him and I said, I'm leaving. I'm leaving my job. I'm leaving my relationship. And I'm going. And subletting the apartment. 
And I got up and left within a month. Where did you go? I went to Thailand. Where? I mean, what did you know? I I, I got a lonely uh, planet book. Remember those books? Lonely Planet to Thailand. And that was all I knew. And um, I had no idea where I was going. I had no monastery, had no, I didn't know who the Buddha was, didn't have any famous Buddhist teachers. I just knew I was in search for something that I wasn't getting in that moment. Hmm. And that when I met that important stranger, it was the most important decision. And I went for it. And I went to, I mean, I just say this, I've said it just recently to my students, you know, just this knowing, you know, there's this sometimes when you're trying to find your ancestral lineage and you're also trying to understand not just your blood lineage, you know, that that's, that's one thing, but many don't have access to their blood lineage. Many don't understand or want to go down that path. Some of us have to go through an adopted lineage to even come home to ourselves in our ancestral lineage, mm-hmm. you know, and some of us may be curious of other lineages and other ancestors. Like there's a curiosity of a culture because we were adopted or whatever it may be. And there's, there's a connection to another culture that we have no ties to. Yeah. There's just a connection that's unsaid, unknown. Yeah. And there's an, and there's an invitation to explore that. So for me, I would say that I just felt this feeling when I, you know, I got off the airplane. I kid you not, the in Bangkok airport is the old airport. Um, the doors would open. The door opened and I was leaving. I had no idea where I was going. The door opened. I smelt the air and the moisture of the warmth, heat. And I felt in that moment, I came home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've not felt like that in about any other country in that way, mm-hmm. besides my own motherland. But yeah, I mean, that's, I felt a coming home. And then it was just amazing that, that the Thai folks that I met just open up themselves, their houses. I pick a book. I looked through the book of Lonely Planet for monasteries with, I don't know, I was drawn to one that ran by a nun. So I picked a small monastery in the province of Saratani in an island called Kopengan. And that's where I went to. Mm-hmm. And that's where I started my humble beginnings on the path of the Buddha. Had no idea what I was signed up for. Had I known, I don't think I would have ever went because I went <laughs> straight into meditation in monastery. Did you leave your entire life behind in London? Yes. Wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. And so then... This path, I mean, when I look at the masters in your bio of all the many masters that have influenced you, um, it's an extraordinary list. And so you, it looks like you went from one thing to the next. You traveled, you've, you did the massage, you did the, I mean, so many parts of the holistic approach to, to wisdom. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I stayed in a monastery for quite some time, and and it was soon after that um, the head nun invited teacher English teachers who taught. Um, that was my you know many 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 months later where Buddhism came in um, because I didn't have any the language or it was like watch, hear, do. So here's the broom, go sweet. Right. <laughs> you know, meditation hall that way. Sit. Oh, sit. <laughs> sit. Be quiet. It, was, it felt so at home. Right. <laughs> so, and, you know, so after I had lived in that monastery and did, you know, she wrote a letter to Bangkok, the bigger monastery that's had to bring English teachers. She, they brought in Steve and, um, and Rosemary, who were very young, there must have been seven, eight years older than me. And they ended up staying there for 25 years or later, 28 wow. years. And they ended up even getting married, you know. Wow. And so a lot of spirit rock folks know who they are. <laughs> and so I learned about the Buddha when they arrived in the monastery and um, got the teachings. So it was something that left. But when I left the monastery soon after, like maybe, I don't know, 
14 months later or whatever mm-hmm. I left I went to a beach resort area where I might find young backpackers you know that are my age mm-hmm. and I went that route and I stayed there for a while and I met a local mm-hmm. shaman who meditated and did massages mm-hmm. and um that was my first like indigenous Thai person that I met who did a healing art that really, he was also, you know, I wanted to work with him and he was also watch, see and receive like you, that was all his teachings. You, I sat there, watch him do massage. He did massage on me. Thai massage is quite amazing. And, and then he go received. And so he would watch me do it. And I did that for about eight months. <laughs> so I got into like after meditating and being in a monastery, I I needed work on my body. I needed to be touched. I needed to be healed. I could feel my yeah. body quite contracted. And yeah, so that was my first entry. Then I found out that in Chiang Mai, <clears throat> my teacher, who's still uh, his family, still alive, still my teacher and Actually, because of COVID, I haven't been there for four years, but I used to go back and forth for every other year to teach as in his schools. And so he has a Thai massage school, Northern Thai massage school. So he's been my teacher from the old Chiang Mai hospital since 89. And um, he's still around, still looks like he didn't age at all. Mm-hmm. And um, his whole family is involved in the family business of massage and And it's quite something. So um, I got into, you know, really wanted to do something cultural, Thai, Mm -hmm. that, you know, to understand culturally. And it was part of the culture of, you know, it's in it's in the fabric of being touched in massage. Like, can you imagine if America, we had that? Wow. That would be, no, somebody (laughs) would sue somebody for Well, well, first of all, we're so uptight here, like, you know, and for good reason. But, you know, just the hands-on healing is everywhere through Thailand. Yeah. Thai massage is very common. Everyone receives it and gets it. And so you you have learned how to do that as well. Yeah. And I learned from him Thai medical massage. And I um, really studied under him for quite some time and would go back for more study. And, you know, it just became something I love doing hands-on healing. So that's mm-hmm. where that came from. And then I came to America, you know, came back to America and um, I started doing, you know, started going in that trajectory certification and also you have the background of the psychology background right and Mm -hmm. and saybrook and transpersonal psychology and all of that so was that when you came back to the states you went in that direction and integrated all of this together is that yeah i mean i think what i did is i you know was trying to interesting enough i just will say that that meditation I mean, it was hard, Conda, being in a monastery at 19. I came across that grief that I had Mm -hmm. turned into anger. Mm. And the longer I sat, it became rage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so there was so much purifying. You know, know it's a purification practice going into, we're purifying our minds, our body, our spirit. We're purifying everything. Because you're not moving, you're meeting yourself, all the pieces that you've like put away and tucked away and wanted to forget about is even pieces of other people that you're like born with and thought, how did I get born into this family? Please help me understand that, you know, so there's. You know, there's that component that just is with you. So I remember, you know, in the monastery, like I was getting angry. You know, I started, you know, doing my work meditation in the kitchen, cutting vegetables. Mm -hmm. And then as I was getting angrier, one of the nuns one day brought me with the broom to the furthest side of the monastery and told me to sweep the dirt of the the dirt path for walking meditation. (laughs) That was my now new work, uh, you know, my work uh, meditation. They moved me far away from the knives, you know, so. (laughs) Right. (laughs) 
had I known that meditation and beating the Buddha was going to bring all of that, there's no way I would have tried it because it takes a lot to be with wow. self. Wow. But, um, but so transformation did all this create in you inner transformation, this, all this, this body of, of whatever you were experiencing. I think it just brought me in this path of like, as you said, like I, I wanted to do something more cultural. So I got into healing and experienced the healing aspect of being, you know, of touch. And, um, and then I just, from that came to the States and did shiatsu and, and then I went to junior college at San Francisco City College, and then I did community worker, and I started becoming a, a pre and post HIV counselor, and and um, and then I volunteered for you know a, you know for HIV organization called the Center for Living. It's no longer there, but and I would have sessions, peer counseling sessions with people who were newly diagnosed. Um, also I gave meditation and massages to people and I just started doing that. And I met my teachers like Irene Smith, who was really huge in the world. I mean, one of the first massage therapists during the height of the AIDS pandemic in San Francisco, who refused to wear any, any suit or just went with her hands and herself and her love and sat with people who were dying. And there were so many dying at that time. Mm. So I was able to learn with her and other massage therapists who work with people who, um, who like Gail, she also taught people how to do massage for people with cancer and who are also crossing over and started doing hospice work and doing death and dying and did classes around death and dying. And, you know, so I just, it just brought me into this depth of healing myself, brought me to this place of also like, what am I going to be doing with myself? What do I want to do in the world? Who am I? And um, very far away from the per- the 19-year-old living in London. I bet, I bet. <laughs> I mean, probably it sounds like even more questions, good questions, not necessarily all the answers, but questions and more important questions. I, I'm wondering... Um, when I look at all of that that you've gone through and all that you've learned and studied, what is now at the core of your teachings? Yeah, that's that a good you're question. Transmitting to others. Well, I think during well, at the core of the teachings, really, you know, if I look back at my life, I had to really go in, as you know, and and see what arrived that I needed to overcome with my family. I didn't, you know, it came from a divorced family in the seventies. So there was a lot that I didn't, there was a lot to unpack. Mm-hmm. And, and then there was also as a, a young adult, I got for just a couple of years, really addicted to heroin actually after the monastery, wanting to fit into my peer group. And as I was trying to discover who I am and what I'm doing and healing myself, I also wanted to, you know, be around folks like myself at that time. And I didn't. So there was that component that was very real. I consider myself a recovered heroin addict right now. And I don't really talk about that so much because it's not really a part of my life. But you know, I I do teach with people like Villa Massaro around recovery because that is part of my path as well, having to overcome such an addiction. So, and so this self-discovery, I guess what Joseph Campbell would be saying, the hero journey, you know, where I just gone through this dark night of the soul, you know, just, you know, really coming into this initiatory process, this initiation, who is Carol? What is life? And then going through going to Thailand and then trying all these discovering going inward and going into the healing arts and then finding, trying to find my way as a young adult, which was difficult. And I mean, the Buddha Dharma house music all at once, you know, at that time, <laughs> this is the late eighties. Okay. You know, this is the late eighties. Eating the Buddha in house music, right? 
<laughs> that was the paradox that I had to hold. But, yeah. you know, as a young adult, so I mean, you know, <laughs> traveling and leaving home and trying to find myself. Right. I still love house music, but, you know, yeah. so, so yeah. there's, there's something there of this self-discovery and this self-healing. Mm. And what I find right now, you know, when I look back, hindsight 2020 Mm -hmm. there's so many intersectionalities of who I am yeah you know biracial um queer um you know Buddhist as a young adult you know so and then coming into my bath and um pre-Christian indigenous understanding when I met my Basque my late beloved Basque elder Angelus Arian and then you know here I am going doing native ceremonies when I came home and wanting to dive into native spirituality and doing you know lots of vision quests and ceremonies and my I was I was seized by spirit and and that self-discovery of self-healing and also there was a lot to heal because I, one, it was easy to leave home mm-hmm. when I realized I was queer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So finding one's tribe right, and where I belong was also mm-hmm. the complexity of that. Yeah. And also healing all of not just my own um, trauma or, you know, I don't think, you know, I've, I don't use that word lightly, trauma, but my own experience of broken home, my own experience being brought up in the South, in, in Texas of all places, and, and feeling the motherland of Texas, don't get me wrong, and then having memories of my grandmother and my aunties and the healing that went on in the kitchen and the conversation. It was a telenovela live every time I was in that kitchen Mm. and there was a sense of belonging that I can't explain. And I later in life, probably hindsight 20 was searching for that same sense of belonging, Mm -hmm. but then the complexity being queer added something different to that. Kind of pushes you away from that belonging in ways and in, in a, in a kind of a quiet secret way. Yeah, I could never tell my grandmother, who was my closest, beloved, you know, teacher of the heart. Oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. You know, so, I mean, for, you know, for many reasons, you know, even being a divorced child, Mm -hmm. you know, that complexity was hard. No one was divorced on either sides of my family. Mm -hmm. My mother was chance, you know, was seen as, you know, not well received, and for leaving my father. And it was just so intense, the complexity. So I think when I think of what I'm teaching now, you know, that is important is to not leave any aspects of who we are and to really be with it and to hold it. And that maybe some aspects of who we are are not really who we are. That the story that we've been telling ourselves or the conditions of our own story that influence and shapes our story is really someone else's story because we heard a voice that could be a stern teacher or a stern adult in our life. And that story still is with us. That way of perceiving things is still with us. That then, so I invite people to sit and to be with that. Is that even your story? And is that even true? Do you really believe that? Mm-hmm. And sometimes we find that that's, you know, a ghost that we're carrying. It's like, you know, someone else's conditioned put upon us. Right. And then at this time with intersectionality and assimilation as a person of color and, you know, in this country and understanding that to survive, one had to assimilate, you know, and especially in the South. You leave your culture at home. Yeah. And there's so much that was left. So that's what I've come to find out Mm. is that there's so much loss and grief. It's not when we just get, you know, an illness or, or, you know, having sat with so many thousands of people in counseling session, whether I worked in a methadone clinic or did hospice, or whatever it was, just being with people at a time of finding out that they are challenged by to the core of who they are through their addiction or through a disease or through an illness, and and then finding that they didn't find who they were. Mm. 
And they still have that question as they're facing their own mortality. And so for me, I think, you know, why not face it now? That's the Buddha teachings to so be with that, it now. Is that like the, the, the sweet spot for you and your teaching to working with people who are in that inquiry, in that internal inquiry and around identity and, and all those parts of themselves? Is that a sweet yes. spot? Yeah, it definitely is. The cross-cultural mindf- mindfulness is not leaving your culture out, but not leaving any part out. And, and, and this is, it's a BIPOC led organization, indigenous centered. So when we say indigenous centered, we're looking at earth-based practices. We're looking at, you know, I mean, every culture has their own, you know, when I think of cross-cultural, it's like the universal, you know, what are our commonalities, not what divides us. Mm -hmm. That's an old paradigm of understanding diversity Mm -hmm. and cross-cultural perspective. In fact, you can get a book now around cross-cultural, still a lot of confusion of understanding that. But the way that I was taught by Angelus Arian was, you know, the cross-culture who was an cultural anthropologist who studied, you know, indigenous cultures around the world for 25 years and extracted a, you know, a model, a healing model modality called the fourfold way. And in this fourfold way, there are four archetypes that she found and at every culture has Mm -hmm. these archetypes with archetypal stories, which is the way of the healer, the way of the teacher, the way of the warrior, the way of the visionary. Mm -hmm. Because there's not a culture in the world when you think of what we have in common that doesn't have the healing arts, that doesn't have their own medicine that doesn't have their own story, that doesn't have their own dance, that doesn't. So there's so much that we have in common Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. than not. Mm -hmm. And so how do we begin to bridge our universal understanding? Mm -hmm. And, And through that, we come to a place of really working with and noticing our own um, biasness. I mean, this is what I would say. I realized that by all the intersections of who I was, I was also perpetuating the white colonizer, you know, white supremacist colonizer point of view around a segregation. So all the intersections of who I was was segregated internally. Internally. Yes. My queer friends over here, my Buddhist friends over there, um, my good time Charlie friends over there. I mean, you know, you know, my, you know, my Native American, you know, community over here. I mean, I didn't integrate Conda. It took me 15 years to integrate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I did all of I came home. I went threw myself into Native American um, spirituality and lots of, I mean, 10 years of intense ritual and ceremony and with medicine people from intertribal, you know, and thank goodness, because a lot of healing, a lot of reclamation inside myself happened. And then I met my Basque elder, which I didn't even know could exist. And I didn't know very much about that broken link in my own ancestry. Mm -hmm. So to have an elder, I didn't even know my grandparents of that lineage very well. They died when I was young, mm-hmm. you know? So, and I, so for me, that was a connection that was needed. And so, you know, developing that relationship and then, you know, her life work, she was a mentor to Joseph Campbell. She has three PhDs, honorary from three universities. One was transpersonal, cultural anthropologist. I can't remember the last one, but she's, just did so much work. And I had the privilege to work with her for, you know, 15 years as her mentee. And Mm. it made a huge impact. And what her whole thing was, you know, was really bringing in um, all of those parts of ourselves, you know, in a cross-cultural understanding. Right. Where we could all be at the table, but we can't all be at the table if we haven't started healing ourselves. So let me ask you a question then. So what I'm getting is that the the uh, paradigm that you follow 
um, has to do with, you talked about those four archetypes and those four archetypes is in every culture. And so that's what brings us together. That's our common thread as a people on the planet. And you're doing this cross-cultural work and, and, and it's indigenous inspired and indigenous grounded. So I guess my question is when I think of indigeneity, I always think that everybody's indigenous to somewhere. Mm-hmm. But when mm-hmm. we think of indigenous, often the, I think the, the public thought is that is socialized as indigenous people like in the United States or in South America or in Africa or in all these brown and, and black countries. Mm-hmm. That that's and that if I'm a white person, I really I'm I don't belong there or I I'm not a part of that. And so but yet you're your philosophy and your teaching is around everybody and that we all have these parts. And so I guess I'm wondering if you're seeing with the work that you do and the way it is set up, when I look at your website, when I look at the symbology, I mean, it warms my heart. It is so beautiful. And I wonder, is it welcoming to white people who think that, oh, that's not for me because I'm not the indigenous people of the planet. Do you know what I'm asking? Yeah, I do. I mean, it's so interesting you said that because I was just listening to an old interview from the 80s with Angela Sarian and Michael Harner. And he was like saying to her, because, you know, her life work is this work. And he was, you know, basically saying, you know, white folks was the first experiential, you know, experiment of leaving their indigenous culture, their European roots, they left it, right? Left it That's for right. this whiteness. That's right. And especially in America. They accepted whiteness and, repl- and replaced their indigeneity of their countries. That's right. And whiteness, last I've seen, is not a culture. It's not. Yeah. No. So no. there is a coming home there, mm-hmm. right? And and so, and I remember one road medicine man um, from the dying nation, he would say, Nothing is more dangerous than being with in front of a white person who doesn't know where they come from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because then they'll take and appropriate. Yeah. yeah. Very, right. you know, so that was a very profound moment for me to realize that. And at the same time, I realized there, you know, that on a human level, that we all have this yearning to belong. Yes, we all do. And, and then when we take the seat on the cushion, just like with the Buddha Dharma, with the Buddha, the Buddha story, you know, we're being with what's here, that it goes beyond even the identification of who we are. Right. And, and but so- there's a tremendous amount of healing that needs to happen first. And, and, and talk about, you know, um, reclamation and, and respiration internally of this of this, I mean, if the body is of the same elements of the land, then how do we start to repair our own self, you know, and this identity? Well, you know, I, I feel like when you're saying that it begins with this healing and internally, I I feel that I'm not so worried, even though we are so fractured people as Black people, as Brown people, as as BIPOC people from our Indigenous land that, are, that we come from. However, we do know that it's there. And if we get the right teachers, they can point us to there so that mm-hmm. we can actually begin to do that internal healing by going back and, and connecting to roots. So I'm not as worried, even though we have a long way to go and there's a lot for each individual to do. What I am worried about is, I think, or what's concerning me is when I think about white people who you just said have left their indigenous from your they've left their indigeneity like don't really know where it's linked to and 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 as you said you know lost in that in that way and grabbing on to whatever it is that they're grabbing on to how does that healing i mean do you work with that kind of healing with white people to help them get to their roots or, or do they have to be somewhere before they get to you already? No, no, no. I mean, I'm pointing the way, as you said, mm-hmm. and what, you know, there are white people who come, I mean, they're the minority in the group and no, it's a, 
you know, and it takes definitely courage to be in that, you know, yeah. to, to be able to experience that and to know what that's like. And, by yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a, it's, it's, and I, and I meet with my students who are that mm-hmm. and, and they have formulated with a white elder. Cause I have elders, you know, right. that come in and mentor um, in my programs and they will hold, I have a white elder who holds the white um, in, in both my programs right now and, and have, and they have come together and meet. So they have a place to heal together yeah. that, you know, cause they find they're negotiating so much that even healing or when to come in and even a sense of belonging, it may not be possible for them to experience in, um, in, in, a, in one of the programs that I'm in that may not happen. So that's why we in the background have a white elder, you know, who's 70, you know, when I say elder, they're in their seventies, they've lived a full life. There's no script. They're just themselves with their experience and they're holding people through this, I would say, initiatory process of, you know, discovering this. And so for me, I'm pointing the way, you know, it's very, very important that one, it's not about appropriation. Right. I am pointing the way and when I say that, I mean, rites, uh, rituals, and ceremony is vital to the Indigenous-centered perspective mm-hmm. because it symbolizes change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It benchmarks that crossroad that one may be at, mm-hmm. and it symbolizes change. Mm-hmm. And that is an important juncture. Yeah. And um, so I'm pointing towards like someone comes in and is like, I don't know what my ancestry I might be bringing in my um, a medicine person. I bring in indigenous medicine people to come in and we do heal, you know, ritual and ceremony. Um, and we talk about it through their tradition, mm-hmm. but they're a medicine person. They may give you a prescription. I will not. Mm-hmm. I will point the way for people to discover who is their ancestral, whether it's blood relative right. lineage, how, what is their medicine wheel? Mm-hmm. What are the rites of passages that have gone? Where is the land you come from? You know, what are what is drawing you? And then another piece, oh my gosh, I just had this beautiful speaker, um, Dr. Madrigal, and who just came out with uh, an, a beautiful book of mindfulness and indigenous you know, wisdom. Oh, wow. Amazing What's book. I highly recommend it. I wish I had the book here next to me. What's it and, called? Um, I... Gosh, I'll just have to show it to you afterwards. All right. Well, and yeah, and um, and it's a family's guidebook to meditation and indigenous wisdom. And mm. she lays out this beautiful framework that, mm. you know, coming from her tradition. And the framework is centered indigenously and particularly from her ancestral tradition, but it's also broad. There's a lot of common, there's a lot of common ground with the framework and it can, it's open to all people to be able to understand this framework and to take it and and discover who they are. So we're pointing the way we're not giving you a ritual and then you take it and you go use it for yourself. No, what is your story? What are your rituals? And then a big component of the program that I teach, which is very huge component from the work of that I did with Angelus is original medicine. Original medicine is really helping people come into their own original medicine, but it's a psycho spiritual development. So we have to look at the false self system that exists. You know, it's not just the spiritual desire to be on this path, but looking at a path of this self false system that creates who you are. So, you know, that's what we're exploring right now. The season of of the summer, the season of the summer is in the East. The season of the summer is the element of fire. What is the fire, as Angelus would say, that takes no wood? The fire that takes no wood, the internal fire. Mm. And so when we're looking at the, we're looking at, you know, the, the season as a teacher, the elements as a teacher, and earth, 
you know, and there are rituals and ceremonies that I point to based on these elements, but I'm not prescribing it. It's a discovery and it's an investigation and exploration for people. And then I invite the indigenous medicine person that will bring their tradition and they may prescribe something to help people come through to remember who they are, to help them remember. And one of the things that um, Dr. Madrigal did for our leadership program is that she spoke to the stories, you know, one story, but the story that you do want to tell, there's two stories, the story that you don't want to keep perpetuating. Mm. And then there's the story you want to tell. So what piece of a story do you want that you have that you would like to share that is your origin story? So it could have been your origin story when you kind of met the Buddha on your path. It could have been the origin story that started you off on your first Grammy. It could have been the origin story that has you with Jubilee justice. You know, I mean, there's so many different origin stories here, but it also could be your ancestral origin story. And I think that, you know, those origin stories and remembering them are vital for us to use that in order to discover, you know, what needs to be healed, what's residing in us that no longer needs to be with us, that we can actually create a ritual and and let them go. They no longer serve us. Yes. And so are you, it sounds like I'm hearing you say, which I too think strongly that in order for us to move forward in a healed way, creating the world that we know we need and the, and who we need to be that going back to our origin and healing those stories it has to happen that way otherwise you're living on top of of things that either you don't know or that you do know that are not truthful or whatever the harm is you're still taking it forward with you yeah is that, is that yeah you're not you're living an unauthentic life an unauthentic life. That's right. And and your original medicine. Okay. So this is the work of Angelus again is pointing to your original medicine. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, is uniquely yours. You're born with the gifts and talents that are uniquely Mm condas. There is your fingerprint is not duplicated anywhere with anyone over 7 billion people. The iris of your eye is not duplicated anywhere. Your tongue print is not duplicated anywhere. Your voice tone is not duplicated anywhere. You bringing your voice forward is medicine. Mm. So you discovering these medicines that are uniquely yours, this this original medicine of yourself is Mm. the medicine the world needs. Mm. But in order to get there, we must look at the false self-system Mm-hmm. Was what the Buddha Dharma would say, the realm of delusion, mm-hmm. greed, and hatred right. that lives within us. Right. right. And, it, and they may not just be developed from us. They could be intergenerational work that we have. They could be, you know, things that we picked up along the way that we're kind of dragging along. And then when we end up in relationships yeah, with people, whether that. it's intimate relationships or right. in jobs or whatever it is, and we're not happy. Hmm. what where what how are we seeing the world and what stories are we creating so you know so the buddha dharma for me my my braided way you know which comes into this braided wisdom my three strands are the strands of my ancestral indigenous roots right and the next strand is the buddha dharma as i came into a young adult those are two strands. The third strand is for the great mystery and my love for the mystics. Mm-hmm. I braid that. And through, you know, what this Induit saying of, you know, there's an Induit saying that um, there's my plan and there's a great mysteries plan. <laughs> so I'm always reminded I can have as many plans as I want, but however... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. However, <laughs> it may not go that way. <laughs> and so are we meeting it with lightness, you know, the medicine of the Buddha Dharma yes. 
and um and then, you know and i love the buddha dharma with the the you know the bringing in the the uh, Brahma Viharas, because it's the, you know, the heart of it, bring it in, you know, metta and compassion and self-compassion and, you know, and then, you know, understanding that you can touch joy, but only when you can come through these, these, you know, what is it like to extend love and kindness to oneself, or I would say friendliness, you know, befriending oneself and then bringing self-compassion that we may the ignorance to understanding our path at the moment or why we keep dating the same person, but they have a different name and a different look. You know, we need to figure this out. Sometimes not so much a different look. (laughs) Oh, this this work can be fun. I mean, right when you get past all the tears. It's fun. (laughs) And it's, it's also, I mean, the whole roller coaster of emotions, right? It's like, I am. I, I mean, I could talk to you forever, Carol. There's so much. There's, there's you've said so many things that I wanted to go into, and I thought, well, that's going to take us off here, and then that's going to take us here. All of it connected, but you know, a whole hour on each one of these. There's so much here that I do want to talk about. So I think what we're going to do is um, think apart about part two on this <laughs> interview. Um, yeah. I am just so thrilled that you are doing this work. So Braided Wisdom, um, people can reach you at braidedwisdom.org. That is your website. Mm-hmm. You also have carolcano.org. Dot com. Yeah. It just tells me my schedule. Okay. You know, I have my story there. People want to know. Other than that, you just get a okay. yeah, but Braided Wisdom. They can find out the work that you're doing and how they can participate in some of right. this. Yeah. This wisdom that you are sharing and how you share it um, and the different mm-hmm. programs. Uh, you have beautiful programs that people can participate in. I understand yeah. they're online now because of the COVID, obviously. Right. Um, but I'm sure yeah. that as soon as possible, because this in-person kind of tactic, tactical um, is, is really an important piece of what you do. It's it's it's. Um, going back even to what you said about the massage and being touched. I mean, wow, since COVID, it's just been so little touching has happened. And I'm sure that that's a part of the neuroses that's going on with people right now as well, that yeah. you know, there's not a lot of touch and we all need that. And so, yeah, well, we really are losing our minds at the moment. <laughs> we really are. And so there's so much healing that needs to take place and you've really touched me. And I'm sure the people, who, uh, the audience that are listening to this and, I just want to say thank you for coming. We will oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, we'll do a part two. Braidedwisdom.org is the website. Um, I will- Yeah, I would love to, Condor. I would love to talk about, like, we didn't even get a chance to talk about the earth base, the land, and, I know. and so the much. unseen. And I mean, it's just so much there as well. I so. mean, you're touching the basis <laughs> of life, of all of life, the mystery of life, you know, at the core of all of us. And what I love is also the healing of these four archetypes that we all have. And that is a part of all cultures and that there's more that we have in common than we have difference. And yet that difference is so loud. And that difference is what is where the healing needs, because that's where so much harm is. It is living in that difference. So much harm is living in that difference and how we play it out with each other. Yeah. yeah. And I just want to say also about that, just this comment of like, we have to heal the differences within us, all the intersections, like in my blood is the oppressor and the oppressed. And yet all of the intersections of who I am, how do we unify it and integrate it? Yeah. And bring in our own braids, you know, yeah. braiding and weaving our own tapestry of who we are. Yeah. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah. A horrible yeah. Uh, cowboy movie. Making it, <laughs> Just, Making it all visible. Yes. Yeah. Love it. Thank you, Carol. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you. It's yeah. been my... To, great to be here with you Kanda such an honor thank you so wonderful you're so welcome so thank you everyone for listening and that is again Carol Cano who's um you can reach her and see and be a part of her work at braidedwisdom.org great thank you so much everyone thank you for being here all right see you next time yeah see you thank you
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now.